and welcome to Reverb. I'm Colleen Storm. And I'm Caitlin Rossi. Today, we're bringing you another installment in our Reblurb series where we break down concepts from the study of language and show how they can help us make sense of current political discourse. That's right. Today, we'll be talking about a concept that comes from sociolinguistics and discourse analysis called dialogicality. Colleen, what comes to mind when you hear the word dialogicality? Hmm. Well, I think of the root word dialogue and other related terms like conversation, communication, speaking, and listening. I think about how people write fictional dialogues between characters in novels, short stories, and podcasts, where two co-hosts perform a cheesy bit at the beginning of every episode to enact a theme or topic from the show. Wow, that's a, a pretty specific association. Yeah, I'm not sure where that last one came from. It just popped into my head for some reason. Well, as we'll soon see, dialogicality is about all of those things you mentioned, but it's also about how dialogue is present in language, even when there's only one person speaking. It can also be useful for understanding how people represent other points of view when they speak, and how they can even silence other views through their word choices. Let's get into it. The concept of dialogicality was born out of the linguistic theories of Mikhail Bakhtin. Bakhtin's writings, along with those of other Russian linguists of his time, posed a rejoinder to structural linguists like Ferdinand de Saussure, who presumed that all words, or signifiers, have a corresponding signified, an idea or concept that the word stands for. In simpler terms, Saussure believed that all words have discrete and objective meanings that they point to, and that the language itself is a static, abstract system of signs, what he called long which encompasses all of the rules and possibilities for what can be uttered in a language. In contrast, Bakhtin argued that it was more useful to think about language as an ever-changing, dynamic system that evolves as people use it. Working in the tradition of Marxist linguists and literary criticism, Bakhtin was foundational in developing the concept of heteroglossia, or the existence of multiple ways of speaking within a language. In his essay, Discourse in the Novel, Bakhtin pointed to the different dialects and styles of speaking used by characters in novels to exemplify how diverse ways of speaking and making meaning can coexist in a language. What his theory highlighted was the presence of multiple distinctive voices in literary discourse. Characters in a novel are presented with ways of speaking that distinguish them from other characters, and that also communicate something about the speaker and their voice beyond the words themselves. Some voices, in the way that they are written or spoken, carry a more authoritative tone. Others signify one's belonging to a certain generation or age group, social group, or to signal political affiliation. In short, language, according to Bakhtin, is best described in terms of how it is used in context. Or, as John Otto put it eloquently in our previous episode, When you speak, you do not break the eternal silence of the universe. You are not the biblical Adam who is naming and categorizing reality in the virgin world. You're always taking words that taste of prior contexts. Following on the heels of Bakhtin, intertextuality scholar Norman Fairclaw characterizes society as having scalable levels of difference, which emphasize political struggles of different interests and identity groups. In this worldview, texts can reshape social difference depending on their orientation to such differences. According to Fairclaw, texts' orientation to difference can be described as having five characteristics. First, an openness, acceptance of, recognition of difference, and an exploration of difference. Second, an accentuation of difference, a struggle over meaning, norms, power. Third, an attempt to resolve or overcome difference. Fourth, a bracketing of difference, a focus on commonality, 
And finally, consensus, a normalization and acceptance of differences of power, which brackets or suppresses differences of meaning and norms. In short, these orientations are used analytically to evaluate degrees of dialogicality within a given text. Dialogicality, then, is the degree to which a text allows space for, or denies, entry to other voices in a single text. The more dialogical a text is, the more identities and groups of society are represented. Fairclaw lays out four ways in which a text can incorporate these voices. The most dialogical option is to include explicit attributions to a source, such as a direct quote. A lesser degree of dialogicality is termed a modalized statement. Modality doesn't provide as much explicit attribution. However, it still creates space for competing voices to enter the text. Low-modality texts are those that make claims without providing access for other voices, essentially being one voice, also known as monoglossic. Lastly, the lowest degree of dialogicality is termed the assumption, which is not so much a claim as it is assumed common ground. Today's episode will use Fairclaw's notion of dialogicality as an analytic tool to evaluate a sociopolitical event that took the media by storm back in 2012. So let's examine a case of dialogicality in the wild. Think back to the 2012 Republican National Convention in Tampa, when the opening remarks were offered by actor and director Clint Eastwood. Although Eastwood had endorsed Mitt Romney for the 2012 presidential election, he was actually a surprise guest at the convention, an effort to mix things up in response to criticism that political events are too staged. But having a surprise guest was not what made the 2012 Republican convention so unconventional. It was actually a case of dialogicality. It started when Eastwood walked on stage and took the podium, next to which sat an empty chair. Eastwood gestured to the chair and announced, uh, So I've got, um, I've got Mr. Obama sitting here, and he's, I, I just was going to ask him a couple questions. But, uh... And for the next 10 minutes, Eastwood did exactly that, posing a string of questions to an invisible president. Rhetorical questions, of course, since he was talking to an empty chair. The speech was viewed live by around 30 million people, becoming fodder for rhetorical analysis, late-night skits, and even an internet meme stamped with hashtag Eastwooding. You can't see me, but I'm Eastwooding right now. The stunt actually fits into a rich history of empty chair debating. The earliest Eastwooding event on record was in 1924, when vice presidential nominee Burton K. Wheeler sparred with an empty chair sitting in for President Calvin Coolidge. In analyzing Eastwood's speech, it's useful to divide it into its explicit attributions, modalized or hedged assertions, and bare assertions and assumptions. Most of Eastwood's explicit attributions are President Obama's words or views. He offers no direct quotes. Rather, he constructs a dialogue with Obama as the empty chair and attributes positions and policies to him. These attributions combine to portray Obama as imperious, irrational, ignorant, and hypocritical. In his first exchange with the chair, Eastwood asks, So, Mr. President, how do you, uh, how do you, handle, uh, how do you handle promises that you made when you were running for election? And how do, you handle, uh, how do you handle it? I mean, what do you say to people? Do you, uh, do you just, uh, you know, I know people, uh, people were wondering, you don't, you don't have it, okay. 
Eastwood thus portrays Obama as proudly acknowledging that he hasn't lived up to his campaign promises and not too concerned about it. Next, Eastwood asks the chair. Well, I know even some of the people in your own party were very disappointed when you didn't close Gitmo. And I thought, uh, well, I think get, closing Gitmo, why close that? We've spent so much money on it. Uh, but uh, I thought maybe it's an excuse. Uh, uh, oh, you, what do you mean, shut up? Okay. Here, Eastwood attributes to Obama an admonition to shut up, implying that his accusation has made the president angry. He goes on to suggest that Obama thought the war in Afghanistan was okay and thought that was something worth doing, despite how the Russians did there for 10 years. I know you were against uh, the war in Iraq, and uh, that's okay, uh, but you thought the war in Afghanistan was, was uh, okay. You know, I mean, you thought that was something that was worth doing. We didn't check with the Russians to see how they did there for the 10 years. But. This is a reference to the Soviet Union's occupation of Afghanistan from 1979 to 1989, during which the U.S.-backed Mujahideen insurgency successfully repelled the Soviets. Eastwood suggests that Obama supported the U.S. war in Afghanistan due to his ignorance of this history. Moreover, he attributes to Obama something about having a target date for bringing everybody home from Afghanistan. I think you mentioned something about having a target date for bringing everybody home. And you give that target date, and, uh, and I think uh, Mr. Romney asked the only sensible question, and he says, why are you giving the date out now? Why don't you just bring them home tomorrow morning? And, uh... Here, Eastwood breaks up his attributions to Obama with a single direct attribution to Republican candidate Mitt Romney, who asks, why are you giving the date out now? Why don't you just bring them home tomorrow morning? Eastwood follows this with another instance of Obama telling him to shut up. There's a, I, I'm not gonna shut up, it's my turn. <laughs> so anyway, we got, we're gonna have, uh, we're gonna have to have a, a little chat about that. And then uh, I, I, I just wondered, these, all these promises, and then I, I wondered about, uh, uh, you know, when, when uh, the, uh, what? What do you want me to tell Romney? I can't tell him to do that. I can't do that to himself. You're, you're absolutely crazy. This implication that empty chair Obama has told Romney to do something to himself is met with raucous applause and laughter from the RNC crowd. Eastwood then attributes to Obama going around to colleges and talking about student loans and stuff like that suggesting the president is a hypocrite for flying Air Force One while also being an ecological man. Uh, you could still use the plane. They, they, though, though maybe a smaller one, not that big gas guzzler that you're driving around when you're going around to colleges and uh, talking about uh, student loans and stuff like that. I think you're an ec ecological man. Why would you want to drive that truck around? Okay. Well, anyway. All right. I'm sorry. I can't do that to myself either. So, anyway. He follows this up with the attribution, I can't do that to myself either, implying once again that Obama has told him to go blank himself. The speech is bookended with an indirect attribution, but it's only indirect because the source is so well known in American pop culture. When Eastwood first takes the stage, the crowd is already chanting, make my day, make my day. 
At the end of the speech, a member of the audience shouts the phrase again. Eastwood ultimately tells the crowd, I'll start it, you finish it. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you very much. The reference is to a famous line from Eastwood's character, Harry Callahan, in the 1983 film Sudden Impact. Early in the film, Eastwood's character, Harry Callahan, enters the diner only to discover a robbery in progress. In the ensuing shootout, he kills all but one of the robbers. The surviving robber grabs a fleeing waitress, holds a gun to her head, and threatens to shoot. Instead of backing off, Harry points his 44 Magnum into the man's face and dares him to do it. Go ahead. Make my day. It's worth mentioning that the character whom Harry Callahan says this to is a black man holding a white woman hostage. So, to recap, the direct attributions, quotes, and references in Eastwood's speech all serve to construct President Obama as a bad leader who urgently needs to be replaced. Interestingly, though, Eastwood uses modalized or hedged assertions most when he's arguing for Romney as the particular candidate who should replace President Obama. Modalization is the addition of verbs like would, could, or should to assertions. These words tacitly acknowledge the existence of other possible views and generally communicate that the speaker has less certainty about a proposition. Hedging is a broader rhetorical technique that includes the use of modal verbs, but also the use of adverbs like maybe and adverbial phrases like kind of. After commenting on unemployment in America, Eastwood gives his most heavily hedged assertion in this speech. And I think possibly now it may be time for somebody else to come along and solve the problem. This is reminiscent of his later hedged assertions that... But um, uh, I, I, just, uh, I just think that uh, there's so much to be done. And uh, I think that Mr. Uh, Mr. Romney and, and Mr. Ryan are two guys that can come along. And... But uh, I think it's maybe time, what do you think, for maybe a... Uh, Businessman. How about that? A stellar businessman. Quote, unquote, a stellar businessman. Here he adds the unattributed statement, quote, unquote, a stellar businessman, referring to Romney, before suggesting to Obama. And I think it's that time. And I think if you just kind of stepped aside and Mr. Romney uh, can kind of take over. In terms of dialogicality, then, Eastwood's endorsement of Romney as the best Republican to take on Obama is extremely dialogical. He does not seem especially confident in Romney, and he acknowledges other possible views about Romney's candidacy. But Eastwood's least dialogical claims, his unmodalized assertions and his assumptions, all tend to relate to conservative values, to the core identity of the Republican base, who they are and what they believe has gone wrong in Obama's America. On these subjects, Eastwood uses no maybes or kind ofs. He is unequivocal. It's just that conservative people, by the nature of the word itself, are play it a little more close to the vest. And they don't go around a hot dog in it. So... Uh... He assumes that there inheres something in the word conservative itself that relates to modesty, to not hot-dogging it. The implication is that other types of people, perhaps especially Obama and Obama supporters, are immodest. Those people do hot-dog it. He assumes that everyone in the assembled RNC audience is like-minded. 
He asserts that unemployment in America. Uh, that is a disgrace, a national disgrace. And we haven't done enough, obviously. Uh, this administration hasn't done enough to cure that. He assumes that it was a stupid idea to try terrorists in downtown New York City. Okay. It just, I thought it was just because somebody had a stupid idea of trying uh, terrorists in downtown New York City. Maybe that would be. He asserts that... Of course, we all know Biden is the intellect of the uh, Democratic Party. So we, uh, just a kind, of a kind of a grin with a body behind it, you know. It's just kind of a, he makes a series of sweeping, unmodalized assertions about attorneys like Obama to contrast their fitness for the presidency with that of a businessman like Romney. See, I never thought that it was a good idea for attorneys to be president anyway, because it... <laughs> I think, I think attorneys are so busy, you know, they're always taught to argue everything and always weigh everything and weigh both sides. And, and uh, they're always, uh, you know, uh, they're always uh, devils advocating this and bifurcating this and bifurcating that, you know, all that stuff. Finally, he makes several clear assertions about the relationship between the conservative base and U.S. leaders. But I'd just like to say something, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, something uh, that I think is very important is that you, we, we own this country. Thank you. Yes, we, we own it. And it's not you owning it and not politicians owning it. Politicians are employees of ours. And uh, so. He thus crystallizes his message into a direct, unequivocal imperative to get rid of Obama. And we, when somebody does not do the job, we've got to let them go. What this intertextual dialogical discourse analysis reveals is a fascinating tension in Eastwood's speech. On the one hand, there's the confidence and directness of the statement of the problem, President Obama. On the other, the tendentiousness and hedging of the particular solution, Mitt Romney. Eastwood uses quotes, constructed dialogue, references, unmodalized assertions, and assumptions to paint a clear picture of Obama. In Eastwood's view, Obama is a bad employee who needs to be fired. Or worse, someone trying to make his day. But his endorsement of Mitt Romney is heavily modalized. In retrospect, this speech portended two significant events in the recent ideological trajectory of the Republican Party. First, the party would not unify enough behind Romney in order to defeat Obama in November of that same year, 2012. Second, the party would move in subsequent election cycles towards leaders who speak with the same degree of confidence and directness as Eastwood when discussing their problems with people like Obama. They would move towards leaders with the confidence, directness, and disdain for dialogue of President Donald J. Trump. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the President of the United States, Donald J. Trump. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. Who's number one with Hispanics? Trump. Trump. I love the Mexican people in their spirit. But the country of Mexico is killing us. I want to build a wall. I'm going to build a wall. I want to build the wall. We need the wall. And Mexico will pay for the wall. But we have some bad hombres here, and we're going to get them out. I don't like losers. He's a war hero. He's a war hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured, okay? I hate to tell you. 
Well, that wraps up another Reblurb. Just to give you a peek behind the curtain, we pulled a little bit of a prank on this episode. Using our new favorite rhetorical concept, dialogicality, we each wrote a different part of this script to be performed by a different member of the team. Yeah, this gave us a chance to write for each other's voices and make the episode maximally dialogical. We hope you enjoyed hearing from the entire Reverb team this time. Until next time, Alex. Sounds good. Bye-bye. Bye. Our show today was written and produced by Colleen Storm, Caitlin Rossi, Calvin Pollock, and Alex Helberg, with editing work by Calvin and Alex. Reverb's co-producers at large are Ryan Mitchell and Sophie Wadzak. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.